This, uh, this psalm is a psalm of David when the prophet David came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin, sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Created me, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O oh Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would, have give, it, I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jer Jerusalem. Then you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. This is the scripture reading for this morning. We're in a summer series that we have entitled, My Heart Cries Out. Today we're looking at Psalm 51 and the theme of the cry for forgiveness. And you might not have caught it at the beginning, but Paul did get to read what's called kind of the superscription. It gives a little bit of context for Psalm 51. And if you have your Bible open or if you have a Bible app, just glance at the beginning so that we can understand the context of what's happening as David is crying out for forgiveness in Psalm 51, the superscription says, A Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And that story comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And if you were to turn to 2 Samuel 11 and 12, 
we find this kind of alarming detail right at the beginning where it says in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, which was kind of his main man, his commander. He sent Joab and his servants, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now, when the king remains at Jerusalem and he's supposed to be kind of the governing leader, you know that this is not a good moment in his life. David remains behind in the city. This is what's taking place in the background of Psalm 51. He's on his own. He is the most powerful man in the nation, and he doesn't have any real accountability. And he sees a beautiful woman. We're introduced to her. Her name is Bathsheba. He sees her while he's walking on the top of a building one day. Again, he's bored. He has nobody around to tell him what to do or what not to do. He's the king. He's in charge. He sees the woman. He makes the phone call. She comes over to his home. He lays with her. He sends her home, and then she sends word that when I was at your home, I got pregnant. And so that detail obviously stirs things up, and so David has to save face, figure out what to do. So what he does is he sends her husband and his friend Uriah to the front lines where he is killed in battle. And in God's kindness to David, what God does is he sends a prophet. We don't know a lot about this prophet, but his name is Nathan. And he sends Nathan to confront the nation's top leader, hoping that he will come to a point of recognition and to a point of repentance for what he's done. And so what was just read for us so eloquently by Paul in Psalm 51 is this agonizingly personal cry for help and for mercy and for forgiveness. And this is a psalm that's going to introduce us to the reality of sin, but what it's also going to introduce us to is the reality of grace and mercy. You don't know how much you need mercy until you have gone through something like David has gone through. I don't know where you are in your life, what your life is holding right now, what you've been through, what you face, what you're holding. But one of the reasons that this psalm is recorded, number one, is so that we could lean into it and say, yes, I need Jesus. I need mercy. This gives us a glimpse of the human heart. But number two, it also helps us to associate with David. David is every man and every woman. When you see yourself in his story, you begin to understand whatever is offered to him in light of what he has done. Something that beautiful, something that gracious, and something that merciful can also be offered to me. David is every man. And so my prayer as we go into this is that the the words of Psalm 51 will go deep today. We need Psalm 51 to resound beautifully. Two things I'm going to take you through in this text. Number one, we're going to look at reckoning, and secondly, we're going to look at restoration. Under this theme of reckoning, really this is kind of a true seeing for the first time. David starts to see things. He starts to put it into poetry. But it's a reckoning, isn't it? And then secondly, we're going to look at restoration, this theme of real deep inner renewal. So look again at verse 1 with me under part 1, reckoning, true seeing. Verse 1. David begins this psalm by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment." For thousands of years, Christianity has talked about and believed in the reality of human sin, and for the same amount of time, for thousands of years, the world has attempted to turn its back on that part of the human story and the human narrative. 
Within contemporary culture, it doesn't take us much to realize that Christianity is often demonized in part because of its emphasis on the human heart and the human soul, human nature, as sinful. So let's not assume that it's easy for you or for me or for David or for any of us to admit that I am a sinner. But that's not natural. I'd almost say anything else. I'm a sinner? No, no, no. No way. Like, I make mistakes. I have some issues. I've got some stuff going on in my life that I need to work through. But that there's something going on deep in the DNA of my spirit, I'd rather not go there. But Christianity says we must go there to make sense of what's going on in our hearts and in our lives. It's not easy for David to write Psalm 51 is my whole point. It's not natural for him to begin in this way. But God has shown him something. He can see something for the first time. Now, of course, as Israel's top executive, David could have easily excused himself. When Nathan confronted him in 2 Samuel 12, this is a man who's on top. And this is an individual who could have easily ignored what was being said to him. He could have pled innocent or ignorant, he simply could have claimed his right as an individual to make and break laws at his own discretions. He happens to be the king, by the way. But isn't that what modern individualism has told us? That you're the king, that you are the queen, that you're in charge of your life, that when you're confronted, that you don't have to stay confronted, that you can make up any sort of justification for whatever you have done, because who can tell you no? I mean, this is easily what could have happened for this man who is literally on the top of society. But through the gift of the Holy Spirit, through this unique prophet who comes into his life, probably with knees shaking, saying, you want me to say what to the top dog in Israel? You want me to tell him what? The Holy Spirit uses this prophet by the name of Nathan to help David finally see the whole truth of his whole life. And not just this once-in-a-lifetime kind of spontaneous one-night stand that was a big mistake that ended up kind of unrolling into this huge mess and cover-up. He begins to see that just wasn't a one-off, but that's who I am. These types of decisions have been a part of my life. My whole life is what David is beginning to see and reckon with for the first time in Psalm 51. He began to see sin as this inward constant companion. Sin touches everything. It's not just there on a bad day. I've got three kids, and I have raised my voice a lot at them. That's not just a moment of sin in my life, though of course it is. What the Bible teaches us is it's a part of who we are. It touches everything, not just those dark moments in your life, the closet moments that you'd prefer not to pull out. You kind of, yeah, I sinned today, I thought a few things, I said a few things, man, you know, not a big deal. What what David is grappling with is the reality of what's going on deep in his life and in his heart. What really is sin? We defined it in part earlier. You know, the Bible introduces us to a God who is perfect, he's holy, he's just, he's righteous, and he says, my way is the right way. I want to set up a relationship with you. I'm going to be the creator, you're going to be the created thing. I'm going to be the maker, you're going to be the thing made. You're going to have to follow my ways, and those ways are just, those ways are right, those ways are true. But sin is the vandalism of that theme. It's the vandalism of that idea that God is supposed to be the one on top. Sin is this idea that I want to be on top. I want to be on charge. I want to be first. I want to be primary. It's going to be my way, not his way. It is the breaking of God's beautiful shalom. 
Shalom is this idea of peace and flourishing, that things work well when he's in charge. And Adam and Eve said no, and every single one of us have said no since then. Have we grappled deeply with that reality? Or we kind of see it in the mirror every now and then, but David is beginning to see it in the mirror of his soul. Like, this is who I am. I need some serious, serious help. Sin is saying no to God's will and to self-will, and it is what is wrong with our world. Take a look at the current headlines. You'll probably see things like racism, injustice, hatred, ego, cancel culture, power plays, oppression of weak people, even things like pandemics. Because the scriptures tell us that when sin entered into the reality of our world, that creation itself groaned, it was broken, it's off its axis. There are things that are broken. And the Christian understanding of sin is ultimately the best understanding of the reality and the world that we live in. You will be hard-pressed to find a better understanding of what's actually going on in our world. But not only is sin a definition of what's going on in the world, it's a definition of what's going on in me. You read through David's life, you're going to understand that David has a lot of enemies. But he finally recognized that his darkest enemy wasn't outside in a neighboring nation. His darkest enemy was inside of his own heart. His darkest enemy was in his life. Friends, sin has no other agenda than to dethrone God and to defame his name and to throw serious doubt and confusion upon the perfect will of God and to establish you as the king and the queen. And for a moment, that sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds so appealing. I mean, you're telling me I get to make decisions? I get to be out front? I don't have to listen to anybody else? Nothing else is going to kind of bend my will? Sign me up for that. See, that's the deceptive nature of what's going on in my life, in your heart, in David's heart. I can do what I want, but see, the deception is so real. And it's like literally like fool's gold. It's, it's glittering lights. It's a rope swing that you go across and you don't realize that it's dry rotted until you hit the ground. This looks like it's going to be fun. That's what happened, all right? I didn't jump. I didn't jump into a lion's cage and save the little boy. That's what I like to tell people. But it was a rope swing that broke. But the rope looked so beautiful and so good. My dad told me it would hold me and I went on it. That's the nature of sin. Somebody said it'll get woven into your sermon at some point. I knew it would, right? It's dry rot but it looks good. It looks like it can support the weight of your soul, and so you start swinging on it, but pretty soon you crash and you burn and you hit hard. I mean, that's the reality of what's going on in David's life. It promises to fill you up, but sin always drains you of your humanity. Look what it did in David's story. Here is this righteous leader who becomes a coward, callous king. Because he wanted what he wanted. He wanted to be out front. He chose his way. He pushed God's way aside. Zero accountability. My heart wants what it wants, and so he took it. Look with me again at verse 3. Verse 3 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this has been a confusing verse for a lot of people when they have read Psalm 51, especially when it says, against you and you only, this is verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Because certainly David sinned against Bathsheba. 
I mean, certainly he sinned against Uriah, but what he begins to see is the bigger picture of this narrative of what's going on, of who he is, of who God is, of the maker and the one who is made, the fact that I exist for him. He holds all things together. I am related to him. He is in charge of every aspect of my life. David begins to see that for the first time. And so he says, yes, I sinned against this couple. Yes, I took that man's life. Yes, I manipulated this woman. But in reality, my heart is is going and rebelling against who God is. I wanted what I wanted, and they got hurt. But for the first time, he begins to see that this is about me in a relationship with the true and the living God. And it breaks his heart. And what he sees for the first time is, I need mercy. I need help. What does it mean to lean into the mercy of God? This is where he begins the psalm, isn't it? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Let me say this to our church. Maybe for the first time in David's life, David sees his self-righteousness as insufficient. Okay? Maybe for the first time in his life, he sees his giftedness, his personality, his charisma, his poetry, his art, his obedience, his leadership, his IQ, his education, his family as insufficient. It's not enough. It is not enough. It will not save you. It won't help you in any way. And he feels it for the first time. And we are a congregation. I am a pastor that leans into self-righteousness so naturally. God has been breaking my heart of self-righteousness. Through difficult things, God is showing me that mercy is the only hope. Because what I'd rather say is, yeah, it's it's Jesus and the cross, but it's me and my obedience and my preaching and my leadership and my love and my family and my IQ and my past. It's my courage. It's my personality. It's whatever gift God has given me. It's anything that he's given me, anything, anything other, other than mercy, right? Anything other than grace, anything other than total reliance upon a God who says, it's about me saving you, anything other than that. But for the first time in his life, he goes, all of my giftedness, All of my righteousness, all of my leadership is nothing. And he says, God, have mercy on me. Man, when the church starts to get that, revival breaks out. Tim Keller, who's noting Richard Loveless, he says that real revival begins to happen when Christians notice and repent of the reality that they have been standing on their own self-righteousness. Can you feel that in any way? Your life, your gifts, it is so natural to say, man, look at me. And in our insecurities, we say, look away. Don't look at me. But in those moments where we're doing well, we say, please look at me. Self-righteousness. And renewal happens when you come to the end of yourself. No Jesus plus me or mine or giftedness or devotion, just mercy. You see, because a broken and contrite heart knows how little it deserves and how much it has received. Did you hear that? A broken and contrite heart knows how little it deserves and how much it has received. And then David is saying, 
remove this from me. This is too deep. I can't access it. I can't go there. I need help. I need a Savior. And ultimately, what he's saying is, I need Jesus. Right? True seeing. All right, reckoning. Let me take you to part two. Reckoning and restoration. Inner renewal. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. So when the Holy Spirit begins to work upon a human life and a human soul, what he does is he brings with him a reckoning, an eye-opening, a heart-opening to the reality that I don't just make some mistakes. I don't just do a, a few silly things. You go, this is part of who you are. This is deep in your soul, exposes you to your depth of, the depth of your need for mercy. But in his kindness, this God never leaves you there. He's not just going to expose you and then move on. This God says, let me get in deep and fix, heal, and restore. If you've got a phone or Bible, I'm going to lead you just through, quickly through a couple of these verses. In verse 2, notice that David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. In verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'm going to be whiter than snow. He knows he can't do this. In verse 10, he says, create in me a clean heart. And then in verse 12, which we're going to stop on for a moment, he says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Look, right there in verse 12 is this fundamental principle for deep inner renewal and forgiveness and restoration. David says, uphold me with a willing spirit. And this is the language of dependence. This is the language of I can't. This is the language of you can. This is the language of I have a need. This is the language of uphold me or I'm going to fall. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, I have felt the darkness. Like the Holy Spirit begins to press on the human heart and the human mind. I have felt what's going on in my life. Jesus, relieve me, sustain me. I cannot do this. I do not have the resources on my own. And it's so childlike, and so many of us are no longer like children. Where you simply come and say, Father, pick me up, help me, save me, restore me. We have been taught to be so independent and to make our own choices and to blaze our own trails and to be way out front and to show no weakness. But our battle against sin does not work like that. God knows how to craft the perfect set of circumstances to get at the deepest part of your heart. Do you believe that? God knows how to craft the perfect set of circumstances to get at the deepest part of your life in your heart. And those moments are often the deepest and the hardest. David uses the language of broken bones rejoicing. And I don't know if this broken bone has been rejoicing lately, but you can imagine that there's a difficulty and a sweetness to it. That when the Spirit of God breaks into a human heart and a human life, that you begin to see yourself more clearly than you've ever seen, true seeing, but then you begin to rejoice because God goes, man, I'm merciful, I'm ready, I will uphold you. Broken bones begin to rejoice again. When it comes to the hand of a God who will settle for nothing less than healing all of your life, the entirety of your heart, and a God who knew that the only way to secure that sort of healing in your life was to send his son for you, you can open up all of your life to him, knowing that he's not out to harm you. 
but he's actually out to heal you. And isn't this what some people will call uncomfortable grace? Uncomfortable grace. A broken bones rejoicing. And C.S. Lewis has a beautiful picture of broken bones that are rejoicing in a scene from his book, a well-known scene from the voyage of the Don Treader, as this young boy who's become a dragon, his name is Eustace, is being restored. And the Christ figure who is Aslan comes into his life and begins to, to kind of break him down and to restore what was going on in his life. So let me read a portion of this picture of broken bones rejoicing. This is Eustace speaking. He says, I knew I'd have to do what it told me, that being the lion, and so I got up and I followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains, and there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything, and in the middle of it, there was a well. And the water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in my leg, but the lion told me I must undress first. So I started scratching myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place, but just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it, and the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right down deep into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been, and there was I as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the language of mercy. This is the language of uphold me, Lord. Because there is no human power or will or resolve or determination or charisma or bank account or education capable of changing, healing, and forgiving the human heart. And so God sent his only son to do what you are absolutely incapable of doing, which is change your life, blot out your transgressions, forgive all that you are as you begin to see all that you really are, jumpstart a new creation in your life that comes from Psalm 51 and give you a future. In Colossians 2, we read, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, and he nailed it to the cross. I mean, this is what Jesus is about. David knows he needs mercy. And Jesus Christ comes into the storyline, and he begins to say, I am what you're looking for. I'm the one who died for you. I'm the creator who bled for you. I'm the one who stayed on the cross when they mocked me. Can you imagine? I just hop right off and smite them. He stays. He stays for you, for the sin to be forgiven. He stays for your heart to be renewed. He stays for your life to be redeemed. He stays so that you can say, cry out for mercy, and he goes, I can give it. He stays so that every part of you can be fixed, healed, redeemed. But it takes a true reckoning from the Holy Spirit so that the church begins to cry out again, Lord Jesus, uphold me, have mercy, 
begin revival in this room so that we can be led out to a world in need. See, in the result of that sort of work, David says, is a restored joy over our salvation. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, David says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Man, here's what I felt this week. I have a lot of joy over a lot of things. I have joy that I didn't get to put a cast on. I got to put a brace on. I have joy that my family's coming back on Wednesday. I had joy that people dropped off some meals for me this week because cutting is not very easy for me and turning the microwave is hard too. I didn't even tell them that. But... I have joy over the fact that we're back in person. I have joy over the fact that we're in a great facility. I have joy over the fact that God is gracious, that I have three wonderful children, that I still love my wife. I have all this sort of joy. I have joy that the Bucks won the game last night. I have joy over all sorts of things. I have joy over salvation. Like, is that the greatest joy of my life in your life, that Jesus has come for you? Do you wake up every single day thinking about mercy, like God gave you mercy? God loves you so much that Jesus came onto this planet for you? Does that give you joy? Or does the church need restoration of that sort of joy? We've got all these truncated joys, don't we? He's put joy in your life. He's put family in your life. He's put work in your life. Joy over the promotion. Joy over the next thing. Joy over the next vacation. But do you have joy over your salvation? That Jesus Christ laid down his life so that you could be forgiven in full. That the wrath of God could be appeased. So you could be brought into the family of God. You mean, Hallelujah. I get to know this God. And he's reviving me. And he's renewing me. And sin is ever before me. But so is my Savior. That's the balance of Psalm 51. That's the reality of Christianity. If we do not go there, there is no joy. You will not go out into a world to share the message of Jesus Christ. Nobody will become a Christian because you shared it with them because there's no inner joy in your life. You need and I need the restoration of the joy of the gospel. The greatest news in the world. I am lost without you. And I'm so self-righteous. You've got to come in and break that in me. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Let me be thankful for the gifts and the family you've given. But let me lean into mercy and mercy alone. And that is the good stuff of Christianity. I pray that for you. I pray that for me, that God would restore our joy over what he has done through Jesus. Can I somebody say Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us and for us. We thank you that you know us. You know us deeply. Jesus, there is a fearless freedom that comes from being engaged with you. There's a fearlessness to our faith. There's a fearlessness to simply being human. And so we pray that you would restore that sort of freedom in our life, that we would know that you're with us, that you have not left, that you're not going anywhere. And we thank you that you're in charge. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to follow where you lead. And I pray that that leading would take us to the cross. And when we sit at the foot of the cross, Lord, we see ourselves. There's a true reckoning. I pray for recognition in my friends' lives. I pray for recognition in my life. All of the things that I've kept hidden, all the self-righteousness, all the ways in which I say Jesus plus, 
all the ways in which I rejoice over the gifts instead of the giver. Would you break our hearts right now? True sight from the Holy Spirit to cry out for mercy, not to cry out for a little more assistance, but independence to say, uphold me or I fall. Lift me up or I die. Help me or I'm gone. Jesus, this is who we are. But you have seen us in full. You have paid for it in full. And now there can be joy in full. We just pray for more of that. Give us a heart like David. That cries out for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.